Hey, you're listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Then join us as we bring together those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on our social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 18. Colm, you had a busy week with a certain conference, right? I, I did indeed, Matt. I was helping out with the UCAT conference and kudos to the committee there and a special shout out to David Gray. They did a really fantastic job. They had to move their annual conference from April. It was due to be in Glasgow and they made it an online festival and it worked ex- extraordinarily well and they there was a phenomenal amount of work that went into it and I was happy to help out and they have a great team there at UCAT and really fantastic sessions. And my understanding is that people will have the opportunity to check those out. If you were a delegate at the festival, you'll have the chance to, to continue to follow up on those. But we were both, uh, I guess, involved in the festival on Friday afternoon and oh, afternoon for you, morning for me. Indeed, um, it was worth that. Uh, it was worth uh, the tuning in from uh, the other side of, of the globe, though. And um, that's because we won an award. We did. I mean, we won the Advising Innovation and Tutoring Award, which was very unexpected, super surprising. Um, I just remember when I got got an email uh, from Ann Bingham inquiring about attending the award ceremony like i thought it was just like we were just being asked to attend to witness it and then later to find out that we got an award that was super cool yeah uh similarly um i got the email from Anne and was just wondering was it a part of what i'd been helping out with with the festival so thanks very much to the ucat committee and the award, which is on its way to, to you, Matt, but the actual award itself um, for listeners, it's wood. I don't know if they can hear that, but it's a really, really nice. And uh, it is sitting beside my home studio set up here and lovely to have the recognition. And thanks to all our listeners and to everyone who has supported us along the way and to all the guests we have had on the podcast to date and that we will hopefully continue to have into the future. Yeah, and I know since it, it's a wooden award, that means still be sturdy and it's not going to break. It's not a frame that has glass. So I am looking forward to getting that in the mail. Knowing how mail is sometimes, it might be like a month from now, but uh, we will see when it finally arrives. 
But speaking of thanks to listeners, I mean, we do have a couple shout outs as well, correct? We do indeed. So uh, first of those is to Iris Muller. She gave us a shout out on Twitter and called Adventures in Advising a real treat of a podcast. So thank you very much, Iris. We appreciate that. And I also want to give a shout out to Sarah Holiday Taff. Sarah said about Adventures in Advising, awesome podcast. If you're interested in what is going on in higher education, this is a great resource with some fantastic information. I listened to the one about removing barriers for students, and it is so relevant for my field. We are examining how to create diversity and longevity for healthcare professionals. And if we don't work with universities to create equity in education, it can have a direct impact on our workforce. I will definitely keep this podcast on my playlist. So thank you very much, Sarah. And special thanks to Gavin Farber from Temple University, who said that he listened to, he's always listens to the podcast, but referenced uh, episode 12, which had Marion Gobber on it from UCLA and said he's loving the podcast and really loved that interview, learned a lot. Um, and if you check Marion's interview, she talked a lot about the professional development that her and her team do for the advising community at UCLA. And also speaking of that episode, uh, Peter Hagen also actually listened to that recently and also said that he loved that interview with Marion and enjoyed the discussion about professional development and how all that ties into academic advising. So thank you both so much. So Matt, we are in the month of September and we are now just about a month away from the NACADA annual conference, which we know will be a virtual event. And earlier this week, we were very kindly joined by Jonathan Halford, who is helping to organize the conference. He's on the organizing committee and he took some time out from his busy schedule to let us know what delegates can expect. And there is a whole plethora of events planned. I think um, we can probably let Jonathan let listeners hear for themselves what will be coming up in just a, a month's time. All right, we have Jonathan Halford, who is an academic advisor in the College of Liberal Arts, specifically advising fine arts students at Auburn University. Jonathan is also the conference chair of the upcoming Nakata Annual Conference that was supposed to be in Puerto Rico, but has been changed to a virtual conference. So what can you expect from the virtual conference? Well, let's ask Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Delighted to get the opportunity to have a chat to you, Jonathan. Maybe just just quickly before we jump into the, the conference, just so our listeners kind of get a, a sense of you, um, can you tell us a little bit about your work with Nakata? Uh, sure. So um, I, I like to tell people I... I, I backed into my first leadership role by by complete accident, um, and, and it was such a happy accident, as, as it turns out. Um, I have a colleague, uh, Nicole Gaylord, uh, who's uh, actually on the um, annual conference advisory board now, uh, but uh, we actually hosted a Region 4 conference um, here in Auburn. Uh, uh, gosh, it's, it's, I think it was 2015, so uh, 
you know, five years now. And, and it all kind of went from there very quickly. And so um, over time, I, um, I'm currently, uh, in addition to being the, the conference chair for the virtual conference, um, I am the region four chair um, rolling off this year. And, um, and I've also been the Alabama state liaison. Uh, so uh, several different roles. Um, and then I was uh, started, I'm rolling on this fall uh, to be a mentor in the ELP program. So it, it, that will be my, my first true stint outside of uh, the region division, but uh, had a hand in a number of region conferences um, and, and planning and, and kind of advising, if you will, um, uh, different conferences and people that have chaired those. Nice. So busy all over the place right now. And I would imagine, especially for the upcoming conference. So originally it was supposed to be in Puerto Rico. And I know a lot of us were excited to be going. And then, of course, with with the times, things uh, have changed. And now it's a virtual conference. So for those that will be attending the virtual conference, can you give us an idea of what attendees can expect? Like what kind of conference experience they can expect? Yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, we're very fortunate um, in in our conference committee. We uh, we started planning this. You know, I, I feel like we've been planning it for, for a while now. But one of the things we did, because the, the original conference in Puerto Rico was so unique in that uh, we didn't have local membership. Uh, that could be on the ground there locally. Um, I was on the conference um, in Atlanta. I was on the committee there and and we had local people that could, you know, maybe go to the site or, you know, just knowing, you know, the culture and, and how, you know, things to do socially and things like that. So uh, we didn't have that with this one. So we purposely kind of have a larger committee than normal. And we have a, a nice committee that's made up of a, a bunch of different people. Some people have uh, done conferences before, uh, and some have not. And so we've kind of paired everybody up. But we have a wonderful committee that that has taken this all in stride and, um, and you know, redone things uh, w- with planning and, and recreated things and creating new things. Uh, so the idea is that we're going to try to make it as what you would expect. Uh, we're we're going to offer some new things, um, obviously, because it's going to be a, a new delivery. But but at the same time, the the quality that that you expect in from a conference, we plan to have there, and, and we're working hard to make sure that we guarantee that. So, it's um, it, it's been a lot of planning, and it's been a lot of um, pivoting, um, if you will. And uh, but it, you know, one thing that we're really focusing on, and I think one thing that for me has been a, an important part of it is is the networking piece. Um, I know for me personally, networking. Um, is such a big part of an in-person conference and and having that social time and, and that opportunity to meet people from other institutions. I, I know for sure I would not be in where I am today and in positions that I am today if it weren't for other people who I started a conversation with and it ended up being, hey, a group of us are going to dinner, why don't you come with us? So, we're, you know, while we can't create that go-to-dinner feeling, we're, we're trying to recreate something where those connections can be made. So, uh, you know, that's kind of um, what what we're focusing on. And maybe that's what's on my mind because that's what we discussed in our meeting this morning. Uh, but uh, that's kind of what we're looking at is is kind of making the presentations and things like that um, are, are, are going to be there and, and there's going to have a lot of opportunity um, to do things in a new way. Um, so we're, we're going to have three different types of presentations. Uh, some will be live. So we'll be semi-live and, uh, and others will be uh, a webinar style virtual. So a live, live uh, presentation is 
exactly what you would think it is. It's it's a, pre, a presenter or a group of presenters uh, giving the their presentation live via Zoom and uh, and offering you know as close to a real life presentation as you can get. The semi live will be a recorded presentation, but will be a live Q and A at the end. Um, and then finally, we have the the virtual, which will be uh, 100% virtual. It'll be a recorded uh, um, presentation. And then, um, you know, as far as asking questions and things like that, there we'll, we'll be using a new platform that that uh, will allow attendees to ask presenters. So, um, but the networking stuff we're still trying to piece together. But the hope is that we can have some theme networking events um, and some opportunities for people to maybe network uh, in a in an area that they have an interest or something that is of a concern for them. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, Jonathan, that you mentioned the new platform there because, look, when it comes to online events, virtual events, and I know it's something that sometimes comes up with, with students and um, around the costs. And as universities, we have to explain that there are still costs involved in running virtual events. And I suppose, look, there there is a cost involved in in this. Um, so, I for those who are attending, could you give any kind of insight into so that they they know that there there is a benefit uh, to to paying the money and and attending the Nakata Annual? Sure. So, um, you know, in, in in case someone doesn't know, um, and um, the the cost did change from the original cost. Uh, so the the fee that that would be associated with it is 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 lower than what it was. But um, some things that are going into that, and and like you said, there there's still a cost to putting together a virtual conference uh, between having the uh, the Zoom accounts to to host a um, a session or or um, a presentation to um, the guidebook app uh, that for people to be able to uh, view the program online or on their phone. Uh, but then we're also using a new platform called Socio uh, that will connect the two and also provide a, a networking opportunity for attendees. So um, very similar to uh, other types of social media, you have an opportunity to connect through that app um, and share contact information or ask questions or uh, really connect with someone, whether it be you know someone that you happen to see in another presentation that maybe they made uh, a suggestion or had a question uh, based on their institution that you connected with, you connect, could connect with them, but also the presenters themselves um, to ask further questions or, or just kind of get clarity. So, um, and, you know, I think that that's going to be a huge benefit to keeping that networking um, opportunities that we have and, and, and we expect at, at conferences. So. You were mentioning with the uh, some of the different sessions. So you have the uh, live session uh, for some of the concurrent sessions, and some of them might be uh, pre-recorded with the live Q and A. Also, at some of the in-person conferences there used to be like poster mm -hmm. sessions. Will that also be something that uh, will be offered in the virtual conference? Yeah, great question. Uh, we are still going to have a, a poster session, um, and basically the way we're we're hosting that is that people will be able to come in. We're we're asking that. Um, everyone put together a, uh, every presenter uh, put together a, a visual, a digital copy of their poster uh, and put it out there for people to view and that kind of thing. They, they do have an optional, I think it's a five to 10 minute uh, presentation uh, discussion uh, about it. And then, um, and then those that might want to connect can connect 
uh, through Socio uh, to ask further questions. So the the poster presentations are still there, um, it, and to me, it's a it's a great uh, part of a conference. Um, it, it's one thing that it's when I started presenting at conferences, it's it's the first time I ever presented, and and it really gave me a different view on it, and and I really. I enjoy the the discussion, and so that's one thing that we um, that comes along with with the poster presentation. So we're trying our best to, you know, keep that as as active as we can. Um, but there there are limitations to you know technology and things like that. So um, that's why we're utilizing that other uh, the Socio app to to connect people uh, virtually and 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 network that way. Jonathan, I suppose. Sometimes when you go to a conference, you, you're in a new city, you're away from the distractions at home. This year, people are going to be in their homes. They, their family might, might still be around. They might have care and commitments. They might have other distractions. You might be in the, in the middle of watching a presentation and all of a sudden the delivery driver arrives and you've got to help get something in out of a truck and move it into the spare bedroom. I'm, I'm wondering, are um, attendees going to have the ability or the opportunity to watch back sessions that maybe they've missed? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's actually a great question. Um, I know for for me, I, I have a three year old at home, and um, boy, the things that she does. Um, and uh, when I'm supposed to be in a meeting, it's it's interesting. Um, so the, there are distractions, um, and as much as we love them, they they uh, they definitely add a interesting piece to your day when you're trying to trying to work or, you know, in this case, go to a presentation. One thing that's new, and I think that this is a benefit that you get from a virtual conference, is that um, presentations will actually be available for 45 days after the conference. Um, so whether it's that you didn't, you know, you, you wanted to go to a live session and there were a couple of things at the same time that, that just conflicted with one another, or like for me, you have a three-year-old that had a meltdown over a milkshake, then um, then you can come back and watch those at another time um, and still still be able to use the the socio app to to connect after the fact. So um, that that's one thing that we don't get in in a physical, you know, in-person conference that, that will be different this year and, and can be, you know, a really a good plus to a to a virtual conference. That, that we wouldn't have normally. I will say having a meltdown on a milkshake, I mean, it is pretty hot outside. It's still summer, so I, I, I can agree with that. Right. Um, so. <laughs> as, as, my, as my student who happened to be on the call said, sometimes it's <laughs> yes. worth crying over a milkshake. <laughs> so one of the things that I also at an in-person conference is uh, usually attendees would be able to visit uh, the different sponsors and exhibitors. Um, is this something that will also take place in a virtual format? Yeah, we're still going to have some uh, some exhibitors and, and sponsors and that type of thing. Um, they're they're still going to have the opportunity. Uh, and, and for those that don't know, uh, exhibitors, even in a physical in person conference, what they get and in, in, in the opportunities they get in a conference are based on the 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 tier price point that they they pay to be an exhibitor. But uh, those that that are in that group will have an opportunity to present. So you might have an opportunity to go in and and speak with an exhibitor in a Zoom room and that type of thing. Uh, But there will be an opportunity to meet and talk with uh, exhibitors. And Jonathan, I suppose, thinking about as I sit here in Dublin talking to you, I'm sure there will be people from all over the world who want to attend. And this year, the, the, the virtual nature of it 
might mean it's more accessible because you don't have the travel costs that are associated with it. And one of the great things last year in Louisville was the Global Lounge, which was a new addition. Is that something that's going to be in place this year? You know, that that's something that, that I ha, uh, actually started asking about today. Um, so I don't have an answer to, to that specific or what it will specifically look like. Um, cause I know that we're doing, um, like we, we're used to having region meetings, um, and, and business meetings and that type of thing. So we've talked about the networking opportunity around those and, and a region update and an opportunity to, to take care of business that way. Um, and so one thing that I've done is, is I'm trying to reach out to, uh, the re, uh, the global, uh, conference, um, the, the person that's in charge of the global conference, Rhonda Baker, um, to see what what she would like to do, what she had planned to do, and work on coordinating something because I know that it was a um, a huge success in in Louisville, and um, you know I stopped by and saw you know people people there every time I walked by there was people there, so you know it was obviously something that that was um, appreciated uh, from our members from around the world that that don't necessarily have a region home. And so that that is something that I've just started reaching out about today, but we will definitely uh, put something together and make sure that we have something out there. Nice. And the conference originally was supposed to start on October 4th, but that's now been changed. So it goes mm-hmm. from October 5th through the 8th, correct? Correct. So so we made a couple of changes um, to the to the conference schedule. Typically in a, in a regular conference, the pre-conference day starts on a Sunday um, and then the the concurrent sessions go through Wednesday, Wednesday at noon, basically. Um, and then before before pre-conference, there's a couple of days of, you know, advisory board and EO meetings and, and, and things like that, administrative meetings. Uh, so um, all of those types of meetings and, and board meetings and things like that are going to be done either before or after conference. Um, and so what we did was just to, you know, time zones was a huge thing that went into planning. Um, you'll also notice that the the time of day, instead of being all day long, is pretty much half a day for those. For for me, I'm in I'm in Central Time Zone, um, so it starts uh, each day right around noon and, and goes until about five. Um, and Matt, it would be a little bit earlier for you, Gollum, a little bit later. So I, I'm not sure how the time zone changes, but it's one thing that was a huge undertaking to try to figure out the best way to fit that in. And that's one way that one reason that we went to kind of four half days um, instead of uh, three and a half uh, full days. So it it just kind of gave us an opportunity so that uh, as best we could keep it from people being in, you know, Zoom land and uh, going to a conference uh, in the middle of the night. Well, I think that the advising communities um, have probably been utilizing Zoom for quite some time in in order to conduct um, their business and hold meetings um, and are probably well used to Mm -hmm. dealing with the the time zone uh, differences. So um, I know that they're obviously uh, a key part of Nakata's remit, and um, I assume they will also uh, have uh, have their place in the annual. Yeah, and so the you know what we're what we're trying to do is coordinate everything, you know, and and, and really it's more of a from a committee standpoint, giving them a, a place to do that type of thing, and then allow them to do their own thing and and have that. Have that have that flexibility to do what they need to to do their business um, and get things rolling 
uh, into the next year so that, you know, it's as smooth as any other year going from, you know, as we roll over out of old leadership into new leadership or continue or, or bring on new initiatives and goals and things like that. Awesome. And I think even though it's a virtual format, I think there's a lot that's going to be going on during this conference. Like you said, a lot of great networking opportunities, a lot of great sessions. Um, I still think the um, conference theme of No Student is an Island, the rich port of advising and connection is still relevant in a virtual format. And I know Colm and I are both looking forward to attending virtually this conference and I know we're both looking forward to talking to you after this conference to kind of get your takeaways uh, from that conference. But Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the podcast for this and kind of give us an update and let us know what, what attendees can expect. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing all of you there and um, reach out. And, and um, you know, if you if you like what you're seeing or if you, if you think we would like to you'd like to see something different, let us know, you know, um, uh, reach out to us. We'll do what we can to, to change as we go. You know, we're, we're going to, uh, we're basically planning to meet every day and, and say, okay, this went well, this didn't go well. Let's, let's make some changes and, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, it's, it's a practice of kind of rolling with the punches and we'll just, we'll continue on as a committee. And, and like I said, I, I can't give enough credit to, to this committee as a whole. Uh, it's, I, I was very blessed that, we had such an experienced committee uh, because uh, we did have to do a lot of things over and, and, and still are. And, and so um, the good thing is we had a lot of experience on this committee and, uh, and a lot of expertise going into it. So, but thank you for having me. And, and like I said, we'll, we'll meet again and we'll talk about it, see how well it went. And uh, maybe we'll take some positives from, from this one and, and move forward with, uh, with maybe some improvements for next year. You never know. great to hear from Jonathan and hopefully you as listeners as well got something out of it and know that there is a benefit to attending this virtual conference that there's a lot of different sessions a lot of great information and even though it's virtual a lot of networking that can also be done next up we actually have Virginia Lohagen from San Diego State University and Virginia is the faculty director of the Asia Pacific Islander Desi American Resource Center say that five times fast and Virginia here she discusses being the new faculty director of the Asia Pacific Islander Resource Center, as well as how our center helps students. She's also written over 300 children's books, and uh, many of those themes center around Asian Americans. And we also talk about how those tie into academic advising. So let's listen to Virginia's interview now. And here's our next guest. We have Dr. Virginia Lohagen, who is the faculty director of the Asian Pacific Islander Desi American Resource Center at San Diego State University. She is also the chair of the SDSU APIDA Employee Resource Group. Previously, she served as a faculty member in SDSU's College of Education, where she directed the liberal studies program, coordinated several international travel abroad programs, led teaching credential programs, coordinated clinical practice, and taught various courses in education and literacy. Prior to working at SDSU, she was a K-8 classroom teacher, community college reading instructor, and program chair for an online university. She is a 2016 recipient of California Reading Association's Marcus Foster Memorial Award for Outstanding Achievement in Reading. She has a BA in English and a master's in elementary education, K-8, and special education specializing in learning disabilities, K-12, through from the University of Virginia. 
Upon graduation, she received the Outstanding Woman Scholar in Education Award. She earned her doctorate in education with an emphasis in literacy from SDSU USD in May 2008. Her dissertation has a qualitative study on the cultural authenticity of Asian American children's literature. She has authored over 300, I'll say that again, 300, yes, 300 children's books and several academic publications about using multicultural children and young adult literature. Most of her books feature Asian American themes. She is serving on various book award committees and is the cover editor and book nook columnist for the California Reader. In addition, she participates in a lot of conferences and professional committees. Most notably, she chaired the California Collab in 2019 in San Diego. And that's how she met Matt Market. And her life has never been the same since. Oh, my goodness. Virginia, how are you? Fine, thanks, Matt. You are absolutely right. My life has never been the same. I don't know what I would have done. I don't know how I lived without a Matt Markin in my life for all these years. So I know I asked you to send me your bio a few weeks ago, and I was pleasantly surprised. Well, I hope I'm pleasantly surprised by reading that last sentence. So has your life never been the same in a good way? Absolutely. I don't know what I would have done without you, Matt. You you are the spark in my sparkle. <laughs> I will say, and I'm sure we'll probably get to this later in, in the interview, but it was a fun time. I enjoyed uh, you as the conference chair and, you know, stressing you out a little bit some of the times during that conference. <laughs> <laughs> but how's life right now in San Diego? Well, you know, it's still sunny. Um, so we, we still have great weather. Well, it's really hot right now, but it's still sunny down here. Um, and like everywhere else, you know, we are, um, making it through COVID. Um, and like all the other CSUs, you know, we will be going online, um, or a flex is what we call it. Um, you know, so we are, um, you know, ready to create wonderful student experiences and, making it virtual so that we can um, be responsible in this time of COVID, but also not lose any of the um, the fun and, you know, the academic rigor and all the stuff that, um, you know, students are expecting at a university. It's definitely going to be interesting time. Uh, do you already have students asking, like, what's going to happen in spring semester? Oh, of course. Well, uh, Matt, I, I'm asking what's going to happen in spring semester. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> I know it's not just the students. I think it's everybody. But I think one thing that we've learned, um, you know, and I, and I think the, you know, the little bit that you have experienced of, uh, you know, the, the velo over here, um, I, you know, I, I, um, I like structure. I like knowing things. I like having an agenda. I like, you know, I like I'm organized. I'm, I like my charts. You know, I'm very, I'm, I, I'm, I'm anal in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, and I will recognize that, but I thought that's how I get stuff done. Um, but, you know, I have learned along with everybody else during this time, it's like, we just got to let it go. I mean, we can yeah. plan for what we know at the moment, and then it is what it is at the end of the day. Um, and I feel like, you know, everyone hates that saying, it is what it is, but I don't know what else we can use. <laughs> It is what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've been using that one for a while now, and I know some people are probably just very annoyed. I'm like, yeah, but there's how else do you put it? Yeah. 
In your past experience, you were a program chair for an online university. Um, does your experience from chairing a program connect with how things are run now at a campus that was primarily on campus and now is primarily online? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I have learned a lot. I was not... Um, uncomfortable going online. Um, and you know, and Matt, I'm going to be honest with you too. I love the fact that I can work remotely online in my pajamas. And I was teasing Matt earlier before we <laughs> came on that I had showered for him today, um, which is a big deal. <laughs> I will say my hygiene has not been like great during COVID. Right. Um, but I do, you know, I do, I, I think it's, it's, I, I like that there's that freedom. Um, and I also feel strongly that whether whatever platform, if you're online or if you're in person, um, you know, if you're not good at what you do, it doesn't really matter. Um, so it's it's really about the person. Like if you're good at what you do, you can translate those skills into an online platform. It's not necessarily um you know, about like the online learning is bad or online teaching is bad. I think there are bad online teachers and bad online programs, just like I think there are bad teachers. Um, and, you know, I'm also as a teacher educator, you know, I've worked and a former classroom teacher I have worked with in the K-12 environment and in higher ed. Um, so I know how important teachers are. And I know, I mean, I can, I'm not going to bore you with all their research on the efficacy of teaching of teachers. Um, but to me, it's the teachers that matter. You know, I think I have parents, friends that are, um, you know, parents and they're constantly worried about like the good schools. And I'm always pushing back. Like it doesn't, to me, it's not about the good schools. It's about the good teachers who, you know, like I would look at who mm -hmm. is teaching versus, you know, like what we think are good schools. So, you know, I think it, it all relates to teachers. Um, so I, you know, I think the same thing with going online, um, being, being online is not the, um, I think there can be so much effectiveness that happens online. And I also find that with online learning, um, we actually push students to be better writers because they have to write. And it's also more democratic in ways because everyone has to participate, you know, by, by doing various different things. So there's a lot of benefits to um, teaching online. Now, I will tell you that my my um, criticism um, will be of accelerated programs. Um, I, you know, and I've also taught at um, University of Pittsburgh in their online master's program, and that's those are online but semester long, and so you get the same experience, you know, as you would at you know any university, but it's over a period of time. So you allow people the same amount of time to read and to write and all that stuff. So I'm not my criticism is of not of online education, but of accelerated programs. That was probably more than you wanted. <laughs> Here's the thing with, with this interview is I don't know where this is going to go. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And people who know you will understand why. Go anywhere. You don't know. <laughs> but to answer your question, of course. So I think that you know, the skills that I learned um, are definitely coming into play. And, um, you know, and I appreciate that. And I also have to say, like, I think, you know, people just have to kind of embrace the online environment and focus on the positives. Um, and you know, there really are, there's a lot of benefits to this. Yeah. I'm interested to see like other schools and other States that are going to be back on campus, how that's going to go. But I know for many of the schools here in California, it's, 
it's virtually online uh, with maybe 1%. Like for our campus, we have like 1% of our classes that are on campus, but everything else is still going to be virtual. But let's talk about your your new role because you're the faculty director of the Asia Pacific Islander Desi Resource Center. So is this center new and what's what's your job entail? Sure. So for sure, because I know that's a mouthful. So for yeah. sure, it's called a PETA. Um, and, but although I liked in the intro and in my intro, how you, you like said each syllable, <laughs> I, I, I said, I'm going to do my best for Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's the PETA center. So yeah, no, this is really exciting. Um, so it is the, um, and on the inaugural director. So that means that, uh, it is an, it's the newest cultural center at San Diego State. Um, and, you know, we, we have like a Black Resource Center um, and a Latinx Resource Center. Um, so this is the latest. Um, and I, I'm really excited to be starting it from the ground up. So that was one of the reasons why, you know, I made the I made the move. Um, and it is, yeah, it's really quite exciting. I'm, you know, committed to serving the APITA communities, um, my community. Um, I'm also, I identify as APITA. Um, and I'm excited to see what, you know, we can do um, for the APITA community at San Diego State. Um, we have a large, relatively large population. Um, and one of my goals is to bring voice and visibility to the APITA communities. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited and I love, you know, the idea of starting things up and, um, creating, I mean, there's challenges, right? There's challenges to doing that. Um, and there's also challenges to coming into an established, um, center as well. But, um, I like the, I, I, I kind of always considered myself as an entrepreneur. So I like the startup. Um, you know, and I feel like I did a lot of things when I was in liberal studies too, to even though liberal studies has been around for a long time, but you know, we had a, a new, like I, I, um, started the CSAT waiver and the ITEP programs and things like that. So we were kind of in a new, um, um, age and you know, I was able to kind of cultivate all that. So that was really exciting. Um, and although, you know, I did kind of because that's that's the role that I was in when I met you um and uh, you know I I am sad you know and and leaving those programs because I definitely want to see a lot of the programs I started finish Mm -hmm. as well but there was no I mean timing is everything and you know I couldn't give up this opportunity um and plus you know Dr. Luke Wood is my boss now and I can't ever say no to Luke so (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone can say no no I know so I I would I I I'm thrilled at the opportunity to work with him. And, you know, he's a great person. And, oh, well, he, you know, he spoke at California Collab. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but anyway, so I, I'm thrilled in this, to be in this role. And I'm looking forward to, um, you know, all the the things that we can do. And, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. Awesome. And, of course, we're recording this on August 10th. This will be uh... Listeners are probably listeners right now. It's September 7th or after. But for you right now, like as a new school is about to start the semester, 
for you, like, how is your resource center? How do you plan on uh, helping students during this virtual environment for APETA students? So we're going to provide a lot of different initiatives and programs. So, for example, we're going to provide some academic programs. Um, We'll provide mental health programming because, I mean, as you know, you know, the mental health um, issues are important in the PETA communities and often overlooked, underestimated, ignored. Um, You know, so we'll be focusing on that. We'll also be focusing on cultural and identity programming um, and, you know, lots of socials. You know me, I like socials. <laughs> but I also think that that's a good, the socials right now are also really important because, you know, I'm trying to launch this in the time of COVID online. Um, so I don't have the advantage of having a physical space in the center where students can come and just hang out um, and get to know each other. We also know what happens in informal spaces. Um, you know, so that's not we're, we're, that's not what's happening without a physical center, but I'm going to try to Build, build as much community as possible um, with creating, you know, online social um, events. And, and well, and I mean, I'm, I joke about this, but I'm also, this is like real, like legit. But I mean, I met my husband online. You know, we can have relationships mm-hmm. online. We can build those relationships, you know, and my husband and I are going on 10 years of wedded bliss. You know, I don't know if he would say wedded bliss. I certainly like our marriage, but you know anyone that knows that have seen my Facebook jokes and know know that I'm pretty much in charge, so I'm okay. Yeah, see, I I would I would agree with that. <laughs> well, I guess we go if we go off on a tangent a little bit because you mentioned your husband. Uh, how's your husband doing? Because uh, recently you all went camping or kind of went camping. <laughs> Matt. <laughs> Okay, so Matt is making fun of me right now um, because my husband decided to rent an RV for a week um, this summer as our vacation. And um, I am really surprised I said yes, actually. But I only said yes because in my head, I envisioned something completely differently. Like I had envisioned like a Beyonce tour bus. I like, I just, I don't know what I was thinking. And then of course, you know, Jeff pulled up with one of those rent America vans. I don't know what they were, but came up and, um, you know, we, you had to, just lots of things. It's like camping, which I don't understand. I, like, I, I don't like camping. Uh, but you know, you got to the poop and pee on the, on a moving vehicle. Then you got to pump it out. Like it's a lot. I mean, I granted, I didn't do any of that. Face. And yeah, no, I did nothing. Matt's making fun of me because I did nothing but complain the entire time. And um, in fact, like we had to, I mean, Jeff basically got sick of my crap, you know, so we left early, like halfway. <laughs> and he, even he joked, he's like, I'm surprised you lasted this long. I was like, I know, like, I don't know. See, so he was pleasantly surprised that you probably, that you said yes, and that you lasted as long. So he, he did get some enjoyment out of it. Well, and it was like, yeah, like I said, it was supposed to be a week long trip and I, we lasted two nights, came back home the third day. Yep. I wonder if he had bets with his friends to see how long you would last. <laughs> I know everyone should have taken bets on that one. But now, you know, of course people are sending me, it's like a big joke now. Like I get RV um, emails daily. That's a good idea. I should start sending you some of those. But yeah, even I will admit I was a brat. Yeah. Like I, I complained the whole time, but in my defense, we also took our two dogs, our two big dogs, about 50 pounds. They were also not happy. So, um, you know, Jeff was just kind of over 
outpowered <laughs> or outnumbered rather. So it's like th- three against one. Oh, that's right. So now you've authored over 300 children's books. And at first I was like, that's got to be a typo. And then I like Googled and I was like, oh my goodness. So how long of a time frame are we talking with, with these books that of when you first started writing your first one till till now? Okay, let's go back to you doubting me. Uh, uh, I'm going <laughs> to skip over that. In my defense, having said that, this is what I mean by it is like, you're always so busy doing something, you know, uh, whether it was liberal studies or now as the faculty director chairing a conference. How how do you find like do you not sleep like what is what what is this? So um yeah so I'm 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 busy <laughs> and I think one of the things that I will admit too that allows me the opportunities to do all these things is you know I don't have kids um, and that's by choice um, and you know it's actually funny I'll come back remind me if I go on the tangent and I'll come back but like I just read an article in the Atlantic and they were talking about like the differences between um you know childless couples and families that have kids right the experience of covid is different and it is um you know cuz we have you know Jeff and I don't have those worries mm-hmm. um and our work isn't right. really impacted whereas I kind of love it when you're on Zoom meetings and then you have you know, like kids like running around I mean that's not making me laugh so I'm like it's fine but we like we don't have to deal with that, right? Um, but anyway, so part of that too is um, you know my rigorous schedule and my grueling schedule um, is also I'm able to do it because I don't have kids, I don't have those abilities, you know, and um, no one's dependent on me to be alive. <laughs> good, and even my dogs that I love dearly, Jeff takes care of them, you know, like when Jeff is away for. Um, trips and stuff like those dogs i don't know how they survive i forget to feed them i forget to water them i definitely don't take them on walks like something you know i'll open the door and let them run out but jeff is the one that walks them every day feeds them twice a day make sure their water is full so like i i'm just i'm not responsible for those things so that allows me the time and the luxury to assume the projects that i do um and one of which is writing um you know so i get into these grueling schedules i have these seasons um and i've these deadlines i'm really good on deadlines um so in fact i have to kind of have work on deadlines um so if i don't have deadlines they just don't get done um so i have these deadlines and then i crank them out so it's like research research them and then write them and then get them out there so it's a it's i'm I'm disciplined when but again it's when my when i have deadlines (laughs) disciplines and then I am a night person I mean I know you know this too because when all my emails get sent um but I'm a night person so I do a lot of my writing and working and stuff at night because I'm usually stuck in meetings in the daytime and at night I can kind of get things plus I'm also chatty in case you haven't noticed um so no one really wants me calling them at two o'clock in the morning to to chat right um, although I do have one friend, Dr. Rafael Santa Cruz, who's a mentor of mine. She's also a night owl, so I can call her late at night. But um, it's, it, yeah, I mean, I basically am churning them out and I'm on a tight schedule. But I recognize, too, that I have some luxuries built into my lifestyle that allows me to do that. Now, um, in your bio, it was mentioned that most of your books have Asian American themes. Um, and I mean, I can assume, but why is that important for you to, to make sure that those themes are included in, in your books? Okay, so my dissertation was on the um, cultural authenticity of Asian American literature. And 
I, I've, um, this has been a topic that has been near to dear to me. Like, for example, I can remember, um, the first time that I saw a Asian character in a book. So I'm going to go back to a little eight-year-old Virginia, Matt, in, in second grade. You know, I remember my second grade teacher read aloud In the Year of the Born Jackie Robinson by Betty Bayer Lord. And she read this aloud, you know, because teachers, they read a lot of chapter books, right? And um, I remember she read that aloud. And I thought, like, wow, like, there's a Chinese girl in that book. And she's just like me. And, you know, it's an immigrant story. So I can relate to, to a lot of it. And then um, I remember at recess making up things. Because, of course, then I was, like, popular for two weeks, right, while we're reading it. And I was looking at me like, is that true? Like, do Chinese people do that? Because I'm like, yeah, Chinese people do that. I don't know. All of a sudden, you became the expert. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and I took it, right? I'm like, that was before we understood what, like, tokenism and all that stuff but I'm like, I'm popular right now. I'm going to go for it. So, you know, I just remember how that felt to have, to be represented. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that it just shows like the importance of windows and mirrors to quote Dr. Rudine um, Sims Bishop work. And, you know, that's, and then when I was teaching elementary school, same thing, I, I would be looking for books that, you know, represent the PETA experience. And I do think that because I'm a PETA, I'm going to be the teacher that brings in that content because it's important. But if I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking for that. Right. So I think that's also why it's important to have diverse teachers in the workforce and the teaching force, because, you know, we bring in those issues. Um, but then I, you know, I just realized how important it is to have those experiences represented. So it just got me into writing, um, you know, different stories. I guess I've always kind of, you know, thought that I, um, I mean, in sixth grade, I won the, um, uh, best writer award at my elementary school. I made up my own newspaper. Um, I made a deal in the fourth grade with my teacher where I said, you know, if I write this book and get it published, can I get an A in fourth grade? And of course she was like, yeah, you know, sure. And I thought like, whoa, I just made the deal of the century. And then having taught, you know, of course, fourth grade, I've taught second through um, eighth grade. So have, oh, actually I've taught kinder through eighth grade. But anyways, having taught um, fourth grade, you know, I thought, yeah, my teacher, like, she kind of banked on the fact that I wasn't going to get it published. I'm like, why not <laughs> make this deal with this 10-year-old? You got nothing right. to lose. So, but anyways, like, I've always written, but it's also, um, you know, I think also growing up with um, being Asian, um, you know, it's just writing wasn't sensible. You know, like, I'm not going to, in my head, I'm like, it's, this is not, I'm not going to make, you know, the, the livelihood off this right mm-hmm. so um got into teaching which I always wanted to do too it's not like I, I didn't settle into teaching I love teaching mm-hmm. um so but um you know teaching was is a stable job right benefits job like salary all this stuff is great da, da, da. so I really never saw writing as a real career path and then um one thing led to another and yeah, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I feel like I'm doing well. And I have a lot more stories in me. I have more stories coming out. I, you know, intend on when I retire from the CSU, this is what I want to do. I want to write full time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as you know, CSU has awesome benefits. So I'm <laughs> rolling out. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, this, I, I think there's something about, um, and I guess I, I would say, you know, I always believe in having a side hustle. I guess writing has been my side hustle. And um, and it's something that's mine, right? It's separate from 
you, you know, the, the other work I do, like this is mine. Um, and I, and I'm not relying on it for my livelihood. So it makes it more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. but you know, I, yeah, no, I, 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 I think putting one foot in front of the other and just doing it is, is really important. Mm-hmm. And it took time. It took time. I mean, I started, my first book came out in 2008. So what is it now? <laughs> 2020 now. <laughs> Which 2020 seems to be going on forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's like, it's been it's like over 10 years. And going off on a quick tangent, because you mentioned teaching, do you have a favorite grade that, that you've taught? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I love third graders and I love fourth grade content. Because fourth grade content, we learn about California. And I love teaching about California history. It's so much fun with Angel Island and, you know, all the immigrant populations. So I love California history um, or state history. Um, and then fifth grade is fun, too, because you have U.S. history. Um, but third graders, eight-year-olds, are hilarious. So I, I like, yeah, I would say that I like teaching third grade, but I like the fourth grade content. But yeah, third graders, you know, they're just at that age where they um, they know how to do things. You know, they can write, they can read, they can um, paste and they're, you know, they have and their critical thinking's kicking in. So they have funny thoughts and, you know, but they're still curious about the, or they still love you and hug you. You know, I don't know how much hugging is happening right now, but, you know, the, the <laughs> they still love you, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I love. Oh, gosh. And I, I'll just share a little tidbit, Matt, like how. Um, so I, this is how old, like nothing makes you feel old, like kids, right? So parents and teachers, but anyways, I don't consider myself as old, you know, but I am. Um, and this is why I know I am because I am at the age right now where, but the students I taught in second, third and fourth grade years ago are now graduating from San Diego State. And I'm and like one of my third graders. Well, actually, I had him for two years because I looped. But one of my third graders is just got recruited for a major baseball team. And I still have like his journals that he wrote. I mean, hilarious. I have tons of stories in my head, you know, whatever. But anyways, but I, I remember like his his mother. It was because you know, we have like relationship with the kids, moms too, parents, you know, with the parent conferences and all this stuff. And I remember his mom was like, go visit him in his dorm. I'm like, oh, my God, no. Because first of all, he's still in eighth grade. Like I still see I'm an eight year old. He's still in third grade in my head. I'm, and I know what happens in college dorms. And I just know. Like I don't see that. I don't see that. You know what I mean? Like it's so, so weird. Like they will always just be eight years old to me in my head. And it's weird. Yeah, they've had this whole life now. <laughs> but they're still stuck in time how you view them. Yeah. So some of the themes like with Asian American literature, a lot of times will uh, revolve around or include like race and culture, finding sense of identity. They do tie into a lot of different things, whether it's like gender, sexuality, um, traditions, culture. So I guess um, that maybe ties also into academic advising. Like, would you say that these are themes that would be beneficial for advisors or professors or staff to know and understand? Absolutely. I think, um, and again, I go back to, I think it's important to have a diverse working force. So it's important to have diversity in advising. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a lot of different reasons, you know, students will, some students, especially I think, 
you know, for the PETA populations, first gen students and students that are coming from, you know, refugee post-war who have a distrust of government and um, authority, you know, to have someone who looks like them, I think is really important. Um, and, you know, but I also think in, in that because we don't have, that's not always the case, right? We don't always have people that look like our students, but as long as people can understand the experiences and um, understand that, you know, there's a reason why the student might not be coming in. Um, and it has, it's not about, you know, disrespecting the the appointment or you, but it's like, if they have a just if they are, if they are from an immigrant um, refugee post-war environment, then they have, Ish, other types of issues, you know. So I do think that it's important to um, yeah. recognize that, and if not to have, you know, my former dean Joe Johnson, whom I loved. Um, so Dean Joe Johnson, he used to say it's like it's more important to have diverse mindsets um, than to be diverse, you know. And I think that that is true. And it's also to open to be. And I feel this way about multicultural Trojans let too, because when I did my research, one of the things that I found was people were hesitant to um, use multicultural literature in the classroom because they were fearful of offending. And I understand that, you know, I understand like you're not wanting to offend, but I also feel like it, then then they're erased. I'd rather have like bring it, bring it in and then open up the conversation. Like, why is this image problematic? Like, I don't think we should be censoring books. I don't think that we should be censoring mm -hmm. thoughts or whatever. I, I think they should all be, be springboards for further conversations. So um, kind of don't be afraid to mm -hmm. offend, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but then be open to dialogue. Um, so, you know, understanding, like, you may not understand, um, your students' lives because how, I mean, really, we can't because they, they each have their own lived experiences. Um, so we can't, but I also think it's important to be open to knowing, like, what pass, like, what are, what's going on? Um, but I say that, and then I also say, because I have, there's that side of it, but then Matt, and I'm sure you figured this out already, but I also have, like, a tiger teacher mentality, right? I mean, my kids will tell you I am tough. I was tough on my third graders and I'm tough on my, you know, um, college kids. So I'm tough and I have expectations. And it's funny because, you know, you'll like people will say that I have high expectations and stuff. But I'm like, really, I'm kind of expecting you to show up on time, stay the whole time, do the assignment right well. I'm like, these are not high expectations. <laughs> these are just the normal expectations, but I happen to enforce them. You know, so um, I also think that it's important, especially for our students who come from underserved communities, that we have high expectations for them. Like they don't get a pass just because, you know, like, oh, you know, like you didn't have these resources. No, like you, you know, there's there's different different paths, same outcomes. I still expect you to achieve, um, you know, and you're going to do these things. <laughs> But maybe we have to think about, you know, like different ways of doing it. But they're still like you still have to meet this. Um, so I have these expectations. Um, but I also have discovered kid, when kids are pushed and when kids have expectations, they live up to them. So and the kids are, you know, like just like my third graders and the same thing with my college kids. They know you can ask them. They know which professors will like they can mess around with and which ones they won't. Mm -hmm. Right. And to me, I go back and say, OK, you know that. But that means you can do it. You're just choosing not to because they know they can get away with it with certain people. Right. So 
I think that, um, you know, this intrusive model, intrusive advising is important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like in some, in some circles that sounds very negative to me, but, it, but to me, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's, um, you know, I care enough about you to find out what's wrong to, you know, to do this and make you come to all, you know, all this stuff. I'm putting in that extra effort because I want you to know that you, you know, you have to live up to this. So um, I think that's important. And I think that we can, um, I think that cultural proficiency, um, well, I guess I go back to this idea of like having a diverse mindset. It's like, I don't think it's even hard for me as an APITA identified person to know everything. I mean, you know, it's like the APITA identity is huge. There's so many different, you know, inter-ethnic politics happening, whatever. So I don't think it's on us to know everything, but I think it's on us to be open to the idea of, you know, they might be coming from, you know, understanding the funds of knowledge, but at the same time, I expect the same. No, not even the same. Sometimes I expect better, you know, so, um, but. Tied to that, you know, you hear a lot about like institutional biases and is there anything that you feel like your current institution or others you've worked at have addressed and how they've addressed institutional bias? Oh, Matt, you, you, you like want to get me fired, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) For the record? No, (laughs) no, I, I am, um, you know, it's it's funny because I do I love working at state. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, like here, like San Diego State, hear that? Love working at San Diego State, and I've had a great time. San Diego State's been good to me, you know, and I I um, am am happy about um, being able to be there. And I'm honestly happy, like mad. I'm just happy to be able to have a job right now, right? I mean, I know that others don't have that privilege, and mm-hmm. I am very cognizant of that. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled, but I also feel like all, I think the good thing about what has been happening in this world, um, because, you know, there's two pandemics, right? We've got COVID and then we've got the, the racial justice issues. Um, and I think for me, what it's done is, um, created more awareness. I mean, I've always been aware, but it's like, now it's like, you're looking, do you know what I mean? Um, and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm, I'm actively looking and I'm actively learning. Um, and I, uh, you know, it's like, and then I look at my, myself and my own practices as well. And, you know, my, um, workspaces and it's there, you know, but I, I want to say that it's everywhere. Right. But I do Mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, San Diego State has done many things to try to be better. And I, I go back to the Maya Angelou quote, right? Do what you do. Like, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, like, do do what you can with what you know now. And then when you know more, do better, right? So I think that's where we are. It's like we're doing better. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm going to make mistakes. And I know, um, you know, as the leader of a cultural center, too, it's like I'm going to make mistakes. And I hope people allow me that opportunity to make mistakes, but know that I will learn from them. Um, but we, you know, I think we're always in a process of learning how to be better. Um, so I, I'm proud of the work that San Diego State has put in to um, try to be more 
woke and intentional and deliberate. Like, for example, you know, in the recent years, we started employee resource groups. So I'm the chair of the APITA um, employee resource group, and we've got a lot of, you know, different different groups. Um, and then, of course, with our cultural centers, and then we have our pledge to support Black Lives Matter. We have, you know, Dr. Luke Wood doing Black Minds Matter. We have, um, you know, diversity liaisons. We have, um, you know, a, a commitment to um, hiring more African-American faculty. Um, we have, um, you know, a, a movement to put um, diversity representatives and search committees. I mean, we, we're like, we're doing it, right? We're doing it. Um, but the question always like, you know, mm-hmm. is, is it enough? Uh, and can we do more? And of course, yes and yes. Um, and, you know, until I, I, I was in a um, another organization to which I belong and I'm chairing the diverse start. I founded and chaired the diversity committee. And one of the um, a comment that came up was like, well, I, you know, like I feel like people, have had enough, like it's enough of the diversity. And I thought, well, I don't, and I said, not that I thought I said this out loud. It's like, I don't think it's ever going to be enough mm-hmm. until we don't, until we have equality and equity. Like it's not, then it's not enough. People, certain people may have the privilege mm-hmm. of um, having had enough of hearing about it. That means you have had, you have privilege, um, you know? So it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's these ongoing conversations and I also think it's important. What I'm learning too is to be more diligent and vigilant. And I mean, Matt, you know, like I, I have a very jokey personality, right. And I, I'm playful and, um, I mean, I'm tough too, but I'm also playful. And I think, oh my God, can you imagine if I was just tough all the time? Like, whoa. I'd be really scary, but it's like I, I know I can be really intense, um, and I know that my students, you know, I know that they see me as intense too. But I'm also playful. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I like, I like joking around as well. So um, I have a little mixture of both. But, but I, I'm finding too. It's like I'm trying to, um, take, like in my, in my, like, and I also have this thing where when I get uncomfortable, I go to a joke, right? So I'm, and I'm trying to sit with that discomfort more and not go to the joke and not you know what I mean and kind of um take it more seriously um and again like going back to being diligent and vigilant it's like trying to trying to pay more attention and um I think we're all guilty we all are every single one of us we're all Mm -hmm. guilty but I think um you know, trying to learn more and be better is the best that we can do. And I, I only think that we can do that with um, when we're being intentional about our awareness. Um, and then and then I say all that. And then I say, but then I think it is important to joke. And because then it's too much. I mean, even if, Abraham Kendi, right? Like, um, like sitting with all the, the, the history um, of racism, you know, I mean, he talked about mm-hmm. getting cancer from it. You know, and I was Chang and writing the her book on the rape of Nanking, like, you know, um, sitting with all of that, sitting with all of that oppression and um, just, you know, like she ended up having to uh, she ended up um, committing suicide because of it. You know what I mean? I just think that like we also can't we have to take it more seriously, but we also have to I think we have to have that balance. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get it. And I think balance is, is the perfect word uh, to use for that. And I appreciate you being like, the one thing about you is like, you're super honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I think 
it, the conversation that you were in where you spoke up and said that, I mean, for you, like, you're always like, if something is, needs to be said, you're going to say it. You know, there's a lot of people that will think it, but you're the one that's going to be saying it. And we, at th- this time, this day and age, like we need that. And so one of the things I appreciate about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And as we get towards the the end of the interview, uh, one question I did have was, you know, you chaired the 2019 California Collaborative Conference in San Diego. And one question is like, why did you decide to chair a conference, um, especially as a faculty member? Because, you know, at least conferences I've been a part of, um, it's always been like, you know, professional advisors or staff, directors, uh, but not necessarily like someone that is uh, faculty. Yeah, well, I thought it was important because, um, you know, when I took over the um, program director role for the liberal studies program, and liberal studies is a really special program, um, it's it's specialized and it's prescribed. And um, yeah, so it's, it's different from other majors, right? So um, and advising was extremely important. And we have uh, designated advisors for the liberal studies program because it's so prescribed. And then we were launching the ITEP and all that stuff. And anyway, so in my work with that, what I realized, um, and I think faculty tend to work in silos. I mean, at least like when I was just faculty, um, and I say that very, you guys didn't see like my air quotes, but like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think there's a lot that faculty do, but like, I do think that we tend to get, we have our classes, we have our departments and, you know, it's, it's hard. Like it wasn't really until I became the program director that I understood like how much, like there's so much more that happens on campus and all the camp, like curriculum committee, which I'm so glad to not have to worry about that anymore, but there's, you know, all these things that come into play, cross campus partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, so these things were made aware to me when I took over that position. And then I realized like how important advising is, um, because that really makes or breaks kids in terms of grad rates. And of course, those are my metrics, right? Um, graduation and retention rates. And so without having good advising, um, you really, we don't have a good program. Um, so it was really important to have those, to have tight advising um, and to work with my advising team. Um, closely to, you know, to serve the students. And then on top of that, the other thing too, it's like, I also worked with our community college partners and the advising departments that, or the counseling departments there, it's called counseling in, in community college. Um, but that was important to build those relationships too, because especially for our transfers, because what we find is that our transfers are often the ones that come in with a lot of missing um, units. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, infrastructure. There's a lot of reasons. Um and we, you know, so, so anyways, it's like what I realized in this work is how important those, um, the advisors are to, um, to my job. And, you know, so without building those relationships, um, and, you know, that, that partnership really, then I wouldn't be able to do my job. Um, and then when the California collab, you know, I saw, uh, I went to the one in, um, was it Irvine? No, Mission uh, I stayed at the mission in. Where was that? Oh, Riverside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's where I met Matt Markin for the first time. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, so went to that conference. Um, and and it has been like this is my a different world for me, right? Because I've been in faculty content, and you get into your content expertise. Mm-hmm. And then um, as I was getting into this job, it's like I I started to go to more um, more student professionals. 
Um, and, you know, now I think in this world too, I think what has, what has been really important for me, and I think what kind of gives me an edge is that I have both. You know, I mean, I can marry, I can really kind of be the bridge between academic affairs and student affairs, which I think is what we need. Um, because student affairs, there's so much that goes on and so much work that happens in student affairs, but academic affairs is where, like, it's that, that's where students do stuff. <laughs> right? Like, if they, if we don't get it into, I, I mean, I know my students do things because they have to do it because they want an A or they want a grade in this class. Um, so I think that those are the partnerships, like where student affairs things are more like optional, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I feel like we kind of need to create this thing where the kids feel like they're, it's all, they have to opt in to it all. Um, so, you know, I, 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 that's kind of my personal goal, um, to be on both sides, you know, to kind of, um, and I, I, I feel like I do have an advantage, like I said before, because I understand how academic affairs works and I'm, um, learning more about what, how student affairs works. Um, and I think I know more about student affairs than let's say my academic affairs colleagues, but I definitely don't know as much as you would, right. As a, you know, as someone in student affairs, but I can appreciate it. And like, I, I have what Joe Johnson says a diverse mindset around it so I can understand it or at least at the very least defer to the right people but I also think that as a you know um I, I think that's kind of an often a mistake that faculty advisors make too it's like go push like go don't try to have the answers for everything like there are people <laughs> that actually know how to do that <laughs> so I think it's important for you know faculty just to know who the go-to people like have a general idea but then know who the go-to people are you know um so and especially with GEs you know like faculty advisors are really good with the major but with the GEs not really you know so making sure that pro staff is involved there so I think um, and that's where I saw the connection for me. It was like, I, I knew I wanted to make those relationships stronger and to have more of a presence. Um, and also, um, yeah, I, don't, I, I have a hard time saying no to things. I just, it sounded like fun, do it, you know, and then, yeah. And then a year later, you know, we did it. And then you and I had our mini conversations of Matt had to put up with my venting a lot. Well, those that know about conferences know that it's very, a lot of great things can happen for a lot of great networking. Uh, there's a lot of positives to it, but of course there's challenges along the way. And sometimes you just gotta, you gotta vent. Sure. Well, and I also joked, you know, and I joked about this at, after the conference when we were debriefing, but you know, no, but none of you told me. <laughs> <laughs> you have to learn it as you go. <laughs> and then of course, like we did the same thing to Jamie, you know, like how complicated this whole thing is. Um, and I want to give like props to all of us that have ever, and Matt, because I know that you have as well, all of us that have led this conference because, and I don't think people know this, but we did it with little money and, you know, like changing, moving targets all the time. So it was, um, you know, I mean, it was really, it was a, it was a mm -hmm. challenge. And that's what I mean about like, you know, y'all tricking me because they have done it knows that but who knows i mean i, I thought maybe, maybe it'll be different for other people when they do it and who, who am i to, to tell them what it's gonna be like because i don't know i like to watch it happen but like uh-huh i know matt was like when i got into pickles and stuff that would be like yeah that happened to me i'm like what how come you didn't say anything 
<laughs> but fantastic job, fantastic job at the San Diego conference. It was it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, and then of course, you know, you mentioned Jamie, so shout out to Jamie Zamian uh, from Sonoma State. But I know we're uh, getting uh, close to time, so I do want to say, like, I did find some quotes about you. Um, and so someone said, oh. "We learned so much today. Virginia was an awesome presenter, knowledgeable, focused, supportive, and assertive." And someone said, Virginia was a terrific presenter, one of the best I have ever been able to be a part of. Very straightforward, easy to listen to, and helpful. And I want to say, based off those two quotes, that is exactly how I feel this interview has gone. I mean, I've learned a lot. You're very knowledgeable, very easygoing. And I don't know what it is to to work for you, but to know you and work on the steering committee with you, it's been a lot of fun. So Virginia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. And thank you so much, for Matt, for having me. Oh, and I also do want to say, though, like the other, because I feel like I was making fun of us being on the California collab, and I don't want people in the future to not do this stuff. <laughs> so I just want to say, like, I had a great time. And I'm so thrilled I did it because I got to meet all of you. I mean, like, it's, Really, like Matt and Dwan and um, Gentle Hands and, you know, like that. Joshua? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joshua Loudon. <laughs> um, but, you know, like we had it. It was a great team. We had lots of fun. And I'm still around, you know. So it's like I, I do think that they um, it has been that that is the important thing about these type of events is the networking and the community building and the friendships that you make. And I definitely feel like I've made some lifelong friends with um, um, California collab. And that wouldn't have happened if, you know, I hadn't said yes and volunteered to do that. So I think it's important. So I think your lesson you're trying to say is just say yes to everything. <laughs> yes. If Matt Markin asked you to do something, say yes. Although I do want it duly noted that I was Matt's third choice <laughs> in, in this podcast. I got asked. I was number three. <laughs> yes. Uh, Dwan Jackson and Jamie Zomian were interviewed first. Um <laughs> So yeah, I'll explain that story later because <laughs> I'll, I'll give the true version of it. Now, my version is the, tr- is, is, is the truth that people need to hear, that you ranked me as number three. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> thank you, Matt. <laughs> Matt, it was really interesting to hear about Virginia's role as the faculty director at San Diego State and incredible that she has written 300 children's books and the theme around the Asian American students and her work. It, it It's just how it all kind of ties together. And I think you did a, a really great job with that interview. For So thanks to you and thanks to Virginia for taking the time to share her stories with us. And the final interview on today's episode is with uh, a man who knows the advising world very, very well. He has been on Nakata's board, UCAT's board, and the board of the uh, advising community in the Netherlands. Some listeners may know him. And for those of you who don't, I hope that by the time the interview is over, you will have gotten some insights. It is Oscar van der Vundhard. 
And I always love chatting to Oscar. He always has so many fantastic ideas, whether you see him present during a conference or you just get the opportunity to have a chat with him over coffee. The so many just he, he they they flow from him and i think that comes across in this interview we discuss culture we discuss student success we discuss advising around the world and some of the similarities and maybe the differences so let's head on over to that interview now Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by a fellow advisor, fellow Nakata member, somebody I have seen present on a number of occasions, somebody whose pieces I have read and always enjoyed. And I really enjoy chatting to him when I've met him at conferences as well. And that is... Oscar van der Vandard. I am absolutely butchering your name, Oscar, but I, I apologize for that. Um, now, Oscar studied history and philosophy in Leiden um, before he uh, joined University College Maastricht in the spring of 2003. And previously, he worked as a director for a study abroad program of an American liberal arts college and as a freelance editor for several publishing houses. So alongside his work at UCM, in September 2017, Oscar joined the staff of EdLab, the Maastricht University Institute for Education Innovation. And at EdLab, he coordinates a university-wide project on retention and student persistence in first year. Oscar became a member of NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising, in 2005, and he was instrumental in it becoming the Global Community for Academic Advising, and that's something we might get into a little bit later on. Um, He has held and been involved in various different positions in NACADA. And alongside being involved with NACADA, he also chaired the Dutch Association for Academic Advising, LVSA, and was recently elected as a member of the board of UCAT. Oscar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for inviting me. It's it's real fun and an honor. And before we continue, congratulations on the huge success that these podcasts have become. It's it's wonderful. And I think you're not doing it for the success. You're doing it for sort of connecting people. And, and I think it really works. And it's a wonderful initiative. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. And I am delighted to have the opportunity to have you on and to talk properly. You've been involved in a couple of the projects that Matt and I have rolled out over the the last year and a bit, but it's important that we actually get the opportunity to chat to you in detail. So I suppose, how are things with you at the moment where we're headed towards the new academic year and where are things at in the Netherlands right now? Yeah, it's an interesting time because obviously um, on March, what was it, 15th or 16th, um, 
the sort of the national lockdown began, which meant that sort of just overnight we had to move to um, online education. And as you said, I'm, I'm currently um, working uh, with EdLab, where we try to support and promote education innovation, um, um, which... I mean, it's it's interesting work and it's important work. It's not always the focus um, of uh, attention for the entire university community, but all of a sudden we were one of the places, not the only place, but one of the places that sort of were in the eye of the storm, so to speak. So we were thinking and, and trying to get information together and, and all kinds sort of means and forms of support for teaching staff to um, to get education online. Um constantly wondering, okay, how long is this going to last? As is this, of course, that's been sort of on everybody's mind. Um, we, can, we can talk more about that later on as well, but sort of, um, but it's it's now interesting because we have sort of the Netherlands has gradually sort of relaxed some of the, um, the restrictions that were there. Um, but as we know, sort of, it seems that sort of COVID is definitely not sort of a thing of the past and, um, and sort of numbers are rising again. So even though right now Maastricht University, and I think many universities in the Netherlands are hoping to um, work with different forms of either call it hybrid or blended learning where parts happen online, parts still on site on campus, um, no one really knows how long that's going to last. So uh, it might be that within a few weeks we'll be moving, we'll have to move back to uh, doing everything or almost everything online again. So, um, but right now it seems that, um, you know, with small numbers of students in the same room, um, we, we can have some on-campus on learning activity, which is critical because Maastricht, I mean, it's critical everywhere, but it's important for Maastricht in particular because uh, we we are a problem-based learning university, which means that students working together on all kinds of, of, of learning assignments and tasks is really an important thing. And um, yeah, we have learned that there is a lot that you can do online, but this rather elusive but very important added value of being in the same literally in the same room, not a Zoom room, but a physical room and, and, and working together, interrupting each other, sort of annoying each other, having coffee together. I mean, that is, that is essential if you want to learn through collaboration and stuff. So, um, so I'm not saying that other universities don't have that problem. I think it's important everywhere and it's, 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 it's important for student engagement across the board, but in our learning sort of system, in our, in our sort of pedagogy, it is even more critical that that students get the opportunity to truly interact. So, um, fingers crossed that we can do at least some of that, um, particularly with the new incoming students who who don't have any sort of frame of reference yet um, and cannot continue work that they have been doing, but really have to start from scratch with all of this. So, yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game, wherever you podcast. 
Yeah, and I I suppose kind of I, I totally hear what you're saying in terms of the virtual space and the real world space and and utilizing the capacities properly of both because I, I think they are very different. And I'm kind of interested in in talking to you a little bit more about that because you tweeted something really interesting a, a few months ago and the tweet was you said listening to students their struggle isn't technology or access to resources but lack of motivation and connectedness we need to focus on these aspects of student engagement now and prioritize them as we decide on the use of limited offline time and spaces and I'm just interested I suppose in delving into a little bit more because I thought that was a really interesting tweet but I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about your thoughts around it I know that that was a few months ago but I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm but obviously we're we're facing into the next academic year with similar sorts of issues as you've just kind of outlined. So can you talk to me a little bit more maybe around your your thinking um when you wrote that tweet and has has anything shaped or or changed or developed in relation to that? Yeah, well, definitely. I think I tweeted that not long after I spoke with one of my advisees. I still uh, act as an academic advisor for UCM students. And um, I, I noticed the same thing with, with all of my advisees, I think. But sort of there was one case in particular that struck me of a sort of a young woman who is from a middle American country, came here because she had a lot of motivation for... Um, issues surrounding sort of social justice and, and, and democracy and all these things. And she clearly wanted to learn things here that she could apply maybe back home and, and make her contribution there. So she was always very excited, sort of sort of on top of, of her game and everything. And when we talked, she would be full of ideas, if sort of sitting in our office talking about this. Um, and now I had my advising meeting with her online. Um, and she was back home, so there was also a huge time difference, and it was sort of fairly late in my afternoon, but still very early in her morning. Um, and I almost didn't recognize her, so she was just sort of sullen, sitting there. Um, no, and she was honest with me. She said, "I'm, I'm, I'm. I, I find it really difficult to get motivated, sort of being isolated from from everyone and everything, and having no idea where this is going." Um, not sure about sort of why why I'm why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. So um, that was a very and, and and maybe her case was very extreme. I don't know, but sort of I I, I found the same thing talking to all of my advisees actually. And later on, we 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 um, sort of colleagues of mine at the institute did, did a, a survey among students and staff about the impact of of the lockdown. And there you could see that students respond differently to certain aspects like did we enjoy working together online or did we appreciate having lectures online but the recurring thing was that it was so much harder to motivate and the, that the sense of connection uh, sort of was was failing and that it was really that everyone felt very isolated um, and 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 yeah I mean you can you can look at this from, from all kinds of perspectives to, I think it has a lot to do with um, Sort of a concept that is sort of, you might say, somewhat dear to me, which is student engagement, which is also playing a large role uh, when we look at um, retention and persistence. But, you know, in, in the literature, this is not my idea, but in literature, engagement of students, also of others, I suppose, is usually seen as sort of 
I think, three domains. So there's an there's a cognitive element. Clearly, I should be interested, so to speak. There's a behavioral element. I should I should want to act and do things. But there's also this affective or emotional element. So that if it should speak to me, I should feel included in it. And that the nice thing about these three domains is that they sort of overlap and interact with each other. But you can tell that sort of when you look at the entire picture of the student experience, they're all equally important. And even if you find the topic you're studying incredibly fascinating, if you're lacking these these other forms of connection, it's going to be hard. And and um, and and it it affects your behavioral engagement. Not only is there less of an incentive to do things, you don't even really know what to do because your entire sort of frame of reference has changed as well. So using what what I meant when I tweeted it, and I think I still support that tweet, is sort of if there is time to spend with students sort of on campus, um, we should not try to cram as much um, um, educational sort of activity into that sort of limited time as possible and just make sure that they hear all the stuff they need to learn, but really that we do the things that confirm things like connectedness and belonging. And that can still be related to to education. It can be in a in a in a, in a teaching setting, but really, this, guys, what are we doing? What are we what are we working on here? What are we learning together? Why does it matter to us? What are we trying to accomplish? And it definitely applies to advising. I think one of the things that, if possible, should be prioritized is on campus advising time, um, so that you sort of. We, we can talk a lot about what advising is, but sort of it is always, I think, about that moment students have to reflect on the bigger picture of what they're doing, um, which is a very vulnerable uh, space as well. And, and, and ideally, you do this in a room where, um, where we were having this conversation with a few people the other day where, you know, in, in, a, in an actual room, there is time for awkward pauses or pauses do not even need to be awkward. If, if, if you're trying to collect your thoughts as a student and it takes a while, that's fine when you're actually in the same room with someone. Um, but, I mean, we all have a lot of experience of sort of talking online and a pause online is awkward. So you, you, you tend to, to, to fill the gaps then, sort of, you know, to fill in the gaps. And, and, and either the student will talk, talk again or you will, while maybe that time in which no one says anything is sometimes really necessary to say, okay, oh, sort of a, mo- a quiet moment, but it's, it's not just me staring into the distance, but it's me trying to organize my thoughts, to collect my thoughts and emotions. So uh, to, to both in, in the learning itself, the learning moment itself, and in the advising moments, I think the emphasis when you're, when you're meeting each other, when you're meeting your students, and when students are meeting you and other staff and, and each other, it should be about that meeting, indeed, M- meeting each other and connecting with each other. Um, and I beca- also, I have to admit that I learned a lot about online learning that I didn't know. Maybe I, I, I um, because I appreciate this whole sort of connectedness thing so much. I am. That's just another way of saying that I'm old-fashioned. Now I learned a lot about online learning that I thought, wow, sort of. I'm not teaching at the moment, I, but if I would be even if there wouldn't be a need for it as there is now, there might be all kinds of things that I would like to use now that I wasn't aware of because they are actually conducive to the learning process. Um, 
So we don't have to replicate everything. And we don't have to, if we have time on campus, again, bring everything back on campus that we can also do online. But we, well, to, to, to use that, that, that personal aspect when you're, I think that's very critical. Sorry, that was a really long answer. Um, I'm making up for the 140 words or, uh, or characters that it has in the tweet, you know? <laughs> Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. I think it's a great answer, and I think it helps to build on the tweet, and I think it is gives food for thought because one of the things I'd really like to see us do in higher ed is exactly what you said. We can't merely replicate what we do in the offline or, or real world or on campus, whichever term you want to use in the virtual environment. I, I truly believe they are different spaces. And I think when we had Connor Buggy on the podcast and we were talking to him about, you know, put online teaching and online learning and putting a, a course together. And he talked about the pedagogy being completely different. And I, I think we, when it comes to advising, it's about realizing that the virtual space is different. And so a pause feels different and everything feels slightly different. And so it's, it's about renegotiating and I think relearning that. And I, this looks like it's something that's going to be with us for some time. And it's probably something that's going to get, get teased out. And uh, Oscar, perhaps there's uh, some research potential there for you as well to, to, to really get your, your teeth into. Um, now, we kind of dived right into it, but yeah. I suppose, I mean, I think, you know, anyone listening to it is probably interested in advising, is probably interested in the student experience. But if we were to go back, I mean, you you were involved um, and I mean, this was my background as well, like working as a director for a, a study abroad program for an American liberal arts college. How did you get involved? Did you enjoy that experience? And, and how did that lead on to advising? Yeah. It was sort of a pure coincidence, I should say, that I got involved. Um, so now we're, we're back in the early 90s, I think, of the previous century. Um, and uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I had my uh, my freelance editing and um, translation uh, activities then, which was a lot of fun, by the way. But, but a friend of mine was teaching a course at a very small... Um, international or semester abroad program that was based in Leiden, um, run by sort of a Midwestern um, liberal arts college. And, you know, this is how things go. If you read the stories of the great conductors, they always get their chance because the old guy gets sick. Um, now, in, in this case, sort of my friend didn't get sick, but he had other obligations. And he asked, okay, can you step in? Can you substitute a few classes for me? Um, which I thought was fun. Also, fairly intimidating, uh, but it was fun. Um, and there was some, there was another course. So this friend of mine was teaching a history course, but it was another course about 
sort of a general introductory course about the Netherlands. Um, one of the, you might say one of the core courses of that program. And at some point, the person teaching that sort of decided to leave the program. And the person running the program at that point, who so we knew each other now, asked me, would I be interested in doing that? And then sort of basically from one thing came another. Um, at some point, the, the then program director um, had reached the age of retirement and, that, and I was his assistant. And um, I was then asked to, to take over his position. So that's how I sort of got involved in that, which was really fun. Um, it, it was a small program. It was semester-based. Usually we would have around maybe 15, 20 students. So it's, it's really very modest, but it was very useful and interesting for me. Um, also confronted me with um, um, my own sort of, sort of learning opportunities, let's say, when it came to teaching and stuff. But it also confronted me with a higher education system that I wasn't familiar with. And of course, these students in their liberal arts setting would have a faculty advisor back home but that person was really far away. So um, they also would have questions, not just questions about, okay, how do I navigate sort of later? And uh, do you have suggestions for next week when we have holiday? But we gradually also got to talk more about, okay, this is my program back home. Um, what do you think I, I could do with what I've done here when I come back? Or in the early sort of weeks when they still could choose courses, I basically was sort of a, sort of a temporary advisor to them. Or even though I wouldn't call it that then. I just saw it as one of the things that I, I, I couldn't should do as, as director of the program. But sort of in retrospect, that introduced me to, to, uh, to advising and to particularly to advising in a, in a liberal arts context, which I think is also why when we with our family moved to Maastricht, um, the recently founded university college there, or I should now say here, was interested in sort of meeting with me because I had that experience. So from one thing came another again. Yeah. Okay. So that was your kind of introduction then into advising. And, you know, I suppose the, you mentioned that it, it gave you an insight into a, a different higher ed system from outside the Netherlands. And that's something you have obviously carried on your, your interest in, can you talk to me a little bit about how you came to be involved with NACADA in the first place? Yeah, so um, so I was with University College Maastricht, and when I joined, that had just opened its doors for students in the first year. So I, I, I joined in the middle of the first actual year when they had actual students. Um, and even though a lot was in place, a lot still also had to be sort of sort of created and invented Sort of, so we were trying to to stay a few steps ahead of our first cohort. Um, so when I when I when I joined, um, I was basically given two assignments. One was to write the remaining core course about contemporary world history, and the other one was to uh, take over the work that someone else of the even smaller staff had been doing until then, which was to work on an advising system. Um, and that was sort of. An, an interesting assignment because at that point there were only two liberal arts colleges in the Netherlands. There was one that was founded sort of, I think in the late nineties in Utrecht in the middle of the country. And then there was Maastricht in the South. That was only the second, um, both variations. I think you could say on sort of the theme of the American liberal arts, uh, program, um, which meant that 
in the Netherlands itself, there was hardly any uh, anyone else doing what we were doing. And um, back in those years, when there were only two, um, even though always cordial, the relationship with the other college was much more about competition than about collaboration. Now that's different. You know, now there, almost every university has its college now, uh, and there is a. A, a network of people who work on, on on guidance, as they call it, and stuff that that's all available now, but it wasn't back then. Um, so somehow I was sort of reluctant or stubborn, uh, or we were sort of we had big egos and we thought we're not going to ask them how to do it. Um, but sort of my colleagues, or closest to being my colleagues, the, stu the student or study advisors at the other faculties of Maastricht University were really doing something else than what we needed. Because we really needed to to uh, to advise students who were building their own curriculum, which which was uh, different from all the other faculties, where you signed up for an economics curriculum or a law curriculum uh, with very little choice. So study advising was a different role there. So at some point, um, after having sort of worked on the stuff that was developed before and sort of tried things on my own, um, the simple story is that I. Googled academic advising, looking for information, and one of the first hits was Nakata, and I sort of that was the first time I found out about them. So, and I, uh, I, I went to the website and I thought this looks really interesting. I asked my boss's permission to join this association, which they immediately gave, um, and then I started reading more of what Nakata was doing, and uh, I guess a year and a half later, um, I was given permission to attend a summer institute in 2007 in Burlington, Vermont, which really was um, sort of, well, not a life-changing experience, but in a way a career-changing experience, or it gave a whole new content to what I was doing. Um, for one thing, all of a sudden I was with a group of, I don't remember exactly how many back then, maybe 120, 150, I'm not sure how many people attended that anymore, but who didn't need any explanation when I was talking about what I was doing. Because even though it was, again, different from what each of the other ones were doing, sort of we had a shared vocabulary, um, there was also no smirk, like, oh, students choose their own curriculum. So, well, then they should just choose the fun stuff. And Because there were many people there who understood the concept of the liberal arts curriculum. Um, and there was this whole body of knowledge um, and experience and practice there. So uh, that, that was wonderful. Um, you know, when you attend the summer institute, you create your own action plan um, on the basis of work in a, in a small group, almost a little bit like problem-based learning. Um, and you attend workshops and, and presentations and stuff. And gradually you work on the particular um, issue that, that you want to develop. And mine was just an action plan for sort of the further development of our advising program. Um but yeah, so I was I was inspired on all kinds of levels. It was it was it was interesting. Uh, I learned a lot. I, I was aware of the fact that what I was doing was not some funny little isolated experiment, was but was part of a tradition. I met with people. Um, I, I have a sort of dear memory of um, someone who was um, from a, a university. Um, not even in Europe, uh, but in a Middle Eastern country where the, one of the, the main languages they use is French. 
And, and because of that, we were both sort of considered by everybody else, the Europeans, um, at which, of course, we, we saw as a sign of great honor. Um, and um, so that was, that was also, so the, this idea of global diversity was there and, and the awareness of that was there right from the start as well. So that was wonderful. Um, so that's how I got involved. Um, and and um, yeah, so one of the, the first things I did, I think, um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of, as an active member was that um, I served on the, the advisory board for the Summer Institute. And yeah, you didn't just attend or, or you didn't settle with a mere awareness about the global community. True to form, you got uh, rolled up your sleeves and got stuck in because you were involved in the task force that um, set a course towards Nakata becoming a global community, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, Kathy Stockwell, who was president uh, at the time, I think she started um, um, she installed this task force. And um, I think the idea may not have started with her, but she gave it a big push, I think. And she asked people both from the US and other countries, um, Penny Robinson from the UK, who's been very active also um, as, a, as a, one of the, the founders of UCAT, but she was there as well. And yeah, we were asked to, to think of what it might sort of look like, what the added value might be both for American members and both for all these potentially new members if Nakata would um, look beyond sort of the horizon and, 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 and become global. It, it wasn't called global community back then. That came out of the whole process at some point, but there was sort of the word international was still used a lot. Um, but yeah, so with a group of people, we, we, we thought of, of the implications of the potential that, that was really sort of a fascinating time because we, we had no idea, I think, where it would be going, but we were working on something really new. So that is always fun. Well, I'm certainly glad that uh, you took up the baton and ran with it because it also led to the Nakata International Conferences, which is yet another thing that um, you were involved with. And I think I've heard variations of the story about how the the first international conference kind of came to be and came to be organized maybe you could give me your version of the story i think there are basically two versions of the story one one is told by someone by the name of charlie nutt who says that at some point he he came to me and said you need to organize the first international conference now the other story is uh, which is obviously much closer to the truth that sort of I got at some point quite anxious about sort of the idea of maybe being the first place outside of the North American continent where there would be a Nakata conference and approached him, um, to which he immediately uh, and excitedly said, yes, I don't know. I don't know where it happened. Uh, it's a blur. But, <laughs> but, but it did happen. Yeah. It, it did happen and, and it has continued to happen. And, um, you know, I mean, I suppose I was a, a beneficiary of that when the International Conference came to Dublin. So not merely content with having, you know, enlarged it to a global community, now taking conferences out uh, into the the world, you also went and 
became a founding co-editor of the new peer-reviewed Nakata journal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Together with Ruth Darling and, and uh, Marsha Miller in the executive office of Nakata, who was our managing editor. Yeah. But with all these things, I, I, I want to stress that, I mean, I'm not denying that I was sort of actively involved in this, but I want to stress that this is never sort of a sort of a single individual's sort of accomplishment. So, and, and um, yeah, with the review uh, in short, so the new journal that was, was interesting as, as well. I think just as with the idea that, that Nakata could be more than just a North American association, sort of another idea I think that was in up in the air for a while was that, um, Nakata could still use, I mean, we have the wonderful journal, sort of the peer-reviewed research-based um, articles, but that as we talk more about scholarship and really talk about scholarship in the context of the profession, not just something completely separate of what we do on a daily basis, but very connected, that there, 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 there should probably be a venue where we write about that, where people write about that, the sort of the connection between what you might call scholarship and, 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 and systematic inquiry and all these things, but also the daily practice of advising and, and how, how they feed into each other. Um, and, um, and that's, that's what the review uh, hopes to become. I mean, we, we launched um, a year ago, now is that right? Yeah, um, and we have one issue. Uh, we 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 uh, we intend to publish on a rolling basis. Um, people still need to find us a little bit, and we need to find more people. We need, we want to reach out, um, and and we, we talk. We being Ruth and I, and now the, the sort of the new editors who will take over um, in October, Peter Hagen and Julie Voller. Um, it's we we talk a lot about. Um, how this can be a place of of real relevance to members. So where where you where you go either as a sort of a consumer and, and a reader or as a writer, if you if you want to engage with this this process of thinking about how do we connect all the theories that are out there? I mean, go to a Nakata conference and people will mention, you know, Ryan and DC and and all and all these big names and 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 then say that it's really important. Um, but how is it really important? How do you connect all those theories? You know, I mentioned student engagement, sort of you, some libraries full of theory about student engagement and motivation. Um, but what does it mean to know that those theories are there and that you, and you being an advisor? Um, that's, that's not an easy question. Um, because the theories usually don't tell you, okay, sort of, it's Monday morning. You have your first meeting with your first, with your student. Um, now do this. I mean, they talk about sort of concepts and and cohorts and samples, or if they're less quantitative, um, maybe more individual stories. But that still doesn't translate into something that I can do that that is that is meaningful. Um, and I think you also see that in in a lot of the the things we tell each other at conferences, um, where we um, usually and I say this with a lot of respect for all those presentations, and I've attended many myself, and and learned from it. Sort of, but we tell each other, 
this is what I do. Maybe some of it is useful to you as well. And then we have sessions sometimes about theory, the theory and philosophy of advising. Um, but I think everyone sort of, or many people find it much harder to connect those two. So if I read, for instance, about self-determination theory, um, what does it mean for me as an advisor or for us as an advising unit? What can we actually do with that? How does a better understanding of how people act autonomously and can be motivated, how does it actually lead to things that we do in advising? And, and um, that, that, that process of thinking about those connections is called praxis, which is also in the subtitle of, of the journal. Um, and, and we're, we're, in, we're, we're encouraging, hopefully, we're looking for ways to encourage sort of members to reflect on those things and to write about it. For instance, by saying, we have taken Ryan and DC and self-determination theory, and we've taken it apart, and we've looked at how we feel it, it relates to our particular context, a huge research university here or a small liberal arts college over there or whatever. Um, and we have found a way to really, for instance, you know, they talk a lot about, uh, what is it again, autonomy, competence, and relatedness, big concepts, and it makes sense. Yes, you should have them. And yes, this is something we talk about a lot in advising, but we have really delved into that. And for instance, I mean, this is a silly example, but we've really developed a protocol for some of our sessions that aim at autonomy in that they create a lot of space for students to speak up, to think out loud, to reflect on the potential consequences of choices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we, we did that in such a way that we, we can show how that was inspired by that particular theory. So it's, it's difficult, but it's also, it's, it's, I think it's essential if, if you want to, as a profession, if you want to grow and move forward. Um, and it's not something that you have time for every day. Um, but the everyday activity shouldn't keep you from every now and then, I think, reflecting on what you do uh, like this. And it doesn't need to end up uh, as an article in the review. Of course, if you have one available, um, if you're listening now and sitting on a manuscript, please submit. And if you want ideas or feedback on ideas, sort of contact us. Uh, we're, we're, we're very open to, to responding to, to questions like that. But but maybe even more important, sort of sit down with colleagues and talk about this. You know, the old fashioned idea of a reading group, um, take an article, um, talk about it and talk about not how that would be great if we could do that, but how maybe some of it you are already doing and what you could actually do. And that's exactly it. And I think you, you talk about it, you know, it, yeah, it is, some of it is difficult and it is challenging, but it needs to be. But I think one of the things I have found in terms of your work and the, the journal and is that there's an accessibility to it. I think sometimes it can seem all consuming to people and they think, you know, my, my work is so far removed from these giant concepts and where am I ever going to get the, the, the time to, to, to look at it or where is that link going to be? And I think you do it a, a, a really nice job. And I think even the, the, the journal piece that you had, is it um, a discipline of, of praxis? It, it, does a really great job of, of breaking 
down, you know, that whole theory and, and how it applies the, the practical application of it to um, our work as as advisors. And I know when we had Craig McGill on the podcast, that was something we kind of discussed a, a, a little bit with him as well. It is scholarly um, as our work is and should be, but it needs to have an accessibility. And I do think that is a, a one thing that Nakata has been really good at is endeavoring to ensure that um, advisors are able to to access um, mm-hmm. it. And, and so um, I know, it, as you said, it is not just you. There is a, a full team that, that are behind it. Um, but I, I suppose you, you have been involved with Nakata for a time and you also have been involved um, with the Dutch Association for Academic Advising and you are now involved with UCAT. And so but I think this is something we have touched on in, in our discussions, I think maybe previously, but the I, I'd be interested and I'm sure listeners would potentially be interested in hearing, you know, about the advising around the world. There are three distinct mm-hmm. organizations. And I suppose what are some of the similarities you see in terms of advising around the world? For one thing, I think this is where you see how all of this is just only beginning because um, we're not talking about that a lot yet, I think, um, which is which is understandable. I mean, that, that conference in Maastricht that you mentioned is only, I mean, it's sort of strange to think about it like that, but it's only seven years ago and we've had a few international conferences and we have there are always international members or non-American members at the annual conference. Um, but in a way, I think we're still in our honeymoon uh, a little bit. Uh, so... Um, and there have there have not been many um, opportunities yet. We try to do this. You know, there is this global panel that we've had at many of the uh, the international conferences and also at the annual, um, where we try to reflect on this. But that's only one hour. Um, many many people, many questions. But um, you know, we used to say. Um, really sort of where you look beyond sort of superficial differences, um, we're all doing the same thing. Um, And then uh, usually we say what we're doing is promoting student success. And then we say, yeah, so see, we are doing the same thing. Um, But of course we're not um, because there is not one definition of student success. and um, student success may not even be um, something that is seen as, um, you know, something where the student is at a central place. Um, it might also be that the education system in a country is really serving different purposes through the, through the student. Um, um, but so what it means to be successful for a student sort of, between cultures, also sort of between students may vary largely. Um, So when we're saying we're promoting student success, we'll have to come up with more to be able to say, and that that makes advising sort of more or less similar across the globe. Because for instance, if you would say, well, higher education system A is, let's let's be a little bit sort of simplistic, is very collectivist. And the idea of, of success is when students 
are able to contribute to the collective after they've graduated in a way that benefits all, um, from which they probably in that culture will also derive a strong sense of pride versus system B, where we say it, it's about sort of your dreams and, and making them become a reality despite all the others. You have your dream and you want to make sure that you accomplish that. Um, what advisors do to promote those two different perspectives may be entirely different. Um, and I was, I was thinking, because I knew you were going to ask that question. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one, there, there are a few terms that I like to use when I'm thinking about what's essential to advising, and they all have to do with sort of helping students to develop a certain sense of agency and autonomy. Um, but those are also not value-free words. Um, because agency in system A looks different than agency in system B. There is no, I'm, 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 I'm not a plat, sort of a platonic thinker. I'm a postmodernist in that respect. So agency is what you make it. Um, so empowering students, all these wonderful words that we even may think are very much, um, sort of neoliberal or Western, they can mean entirely different things. So we're, we're an elusive bunch globally. We, we are people who talk to students um, who sometimes tell them things, sometimes ask them to tell us things. Um, sometimes we just fix things for them, but not too often because advising is teaching, we all say. Um, but in certain, in some countries, you know, you even see this. I think in 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 um, in the UK. I don't know about Ireland, but there is a strong connection historically. It seems to me between personal tutoring, which is maybe a little bit more like advising, but also um, sort of skills support, um, um, things like writing and stuff. And you see similar things. And I have to be careful. Very limited knowledge, but um, you see the same thing in China, um, where. Um, the term academic advising is used often also in connection with um, more sort of, I wouldn't say remedial teaching, but it's closely connecting to helping students develop certain skills. So um, are we doing the same across the world? No, I don't think so. But we feel that we are in a way enough to want to talk to each other and learn from each other. So I don't, I don't have a problem with the fact that there is not an underlying thing that we have in common. Um, it's, we, when, when, you know, we've been, I think we've been very fortunate at, 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 at conferences and maybe in particularly the international conferences to hear stories from all kinds of sort of educational and cultural backgrounds. And they're always interesting. Um, even though sometimes after five minutes you may decide, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, but then you're thinking, but it is interesting. For one thing, you're, you, you have to ask the question, why are we not doing that? And it may be that you have a wonderful answer to that. That makes sense. But even that is a good thing because then you know, okay, yeah. So we, we have our vision, our own vision, our own role, and that is not part of it. Even though I can see how it is, it, it, it's something that they see as their role in, in that particular constellation, we don't, and that's not just out of neglect, but it makes sense. So it can also be, sometimes it can be um, 
um, how do you call that, sort of um, a form of sort of confirmation in a way. Um, so I like, yeah, it's nice that advising is different things in different countries, but that we all um, converge around this one word for some reason. Indeed, and I think this is a topic that will continue to be discussed and explored. As I said, we are really at the beginning of, of this journey, and it's certainly a topic I'm interested in, so I look forward to, to further discussions. Now, I suppose as we kind of move towards the the latter part of the interview, as somebody who has worked in, in the field and does have experience of, of working with the different organizations. For listeners who, you know, are maybe, again, we're, we're headed into a, a new academic year across the world, but for people who maybe are kind of beginning their advising career, is there any advice or um that you would offer to, to people? We are, I mean, it's certainly it's, you know, we keep hearing the un unprecedented is the, the term I think I've heard used most in, in 2020. Um, but as, as they, they embark on the new academic year, or maybe people who are embarking on it, but very uncertain, mm -hmm. is there anything that um, somebody who, uh, you know, has uh, a depth of knowledge um, I, I, and experience would offer? Yeah, I have I have two sentences for that, and they will be brilliant. Um, well, you seem to be asking two things. So, at the at the beginning of this academic year, and at the beginning of what might become a career in advising. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, the first question is the hardest, I think. Um, there, I would sort of. And I, I won't sort of repeat everything because that was a really long story I said at the beginning. But I think this is a is a good time. Even you know, there are all kinds of practical things that need to be solved. And and I um, sort of regardless of the educational system you're in. So you know, scheduling or or semester abroad plans that have sort of fallen into pieces, or or all these this this these immediate needs. But I think when it comes to our current situation, it is really sort of, I would encourage everyone to, to take a little bit of time to do some reading and to do some sort of talking about these things we talked about at the beginning, sort of the, the elusive things like the emotional engagement, the, the, the connectedness. How do we make sure that we, 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 Provide that, particularly new for first-year students coming in with with no sense of what it means to be a um, an academic community community that is limited in what it can do because you haven't even been part of that academic community. So, but also for everyone and also for ourselves to sort of and and to really make that part of the process also of decision-making. So this is a form of connecting maybe theory to practice, you know, that with, with all the scheduling. And I, and I um, 
I, I, I cannot in any way underestimate all the work that means for everyone. So there's maybe never been a moment where the argument, I don't have time for that, was, was more acceptable in a way. But I think, and I've also seen that a little bit, I think when we were going to trying to get all our education online, when you, when you, when there is pressure, when there is no time for that, you, um, you start looking at everything at a very pragmatic level, which usually is, okay, this is how we did it in situation A. Now, how, how can we do the same thing in situation B? And then, the same thing will usually not be about this is how we engaged and motivated students in situation A. Now, how can we do that in situation B? But it will usually be about this is how we organize classes and scheduling and, and library access in situation A. Now, how do we do that in situation B? The piece that gets lost then is the one that we maybe sometimes or often take for granted in situation A, which is that students are connected, know their way around. If they're bored during or after sort of a session, it's okay because afterwards words they all have a coffee together and talk about that stuff and, and it will still get meaning. And but we don't we usually don't even have to think about that. Which is one of the interesting things about the current situation as well, I think. A lot of stuff gets exposed. A lot of things that we took for granted or never thought about now seem to be turn out to be so incredibly important. And I think in advising as well, it, it's 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 critical that we understand that and 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 get beyond the point where we say we feel that it matters to students, but maybe read a little bit about it, or or talk together about it. Be be the scholars by having a conversation. So we see this happening, and we expected that it would happen. But what is it really, and what can we do? Again, sort of way too long. Um, so the listeners could have used this precious time to do what I just suggested they would do. But <laughs> and for beginning advisors, I think depending a little bit on where you are, a very obvious example is or, or suggestion is visit the website of one of those organizations and maybe do it from two combined perspectives. One is the description of your role as it is, and you cannot always choose what that is. Um, but also what it is that drew you to that position. Um, because it may be that you that you have to do all kinds of things that, that sort of may not be your, your um, of, of your immediate preference, but you know they're part of advising and you wanted that advising job and now your office tells you to do this, that you need to know about this because that's your, your daily activity. But you probably also came in with your own motivation. So try to also find out more about that piece, even though you cannot immediately do something with it, but sort of motivate yourself in that way and, and confirm your own motivation, if that makes sense. Yeah, I asked that question and I probably asked the, the two-pronged question because I knew you would have something to offer. And I think when you what you raised is a really valid point around that we there there's lots that is taken for granted and in as we move to the online or virtual environment again that's something else we we need to consider oscar every time i i talk to you i i walk away and i have so many things buzzing around my brain and this has been no different i want to thank you for 
your generosity with your time and I know I gained plenty I've no doubt listeners will as well we'll put some of the links to the organizations and some of your pieces in the show notes so that listeners have the opportunity to check those out and thank you once again and I look forward to chatting to you at our next conference or event be that virtually or in person yeah i do too thank you very much again for inviting me Oscar's always such a great person to chat to and learn from. It was great hearing from Oscar talk about the domains of engagement, his involvement in Nakata, as well as academic advising in general, and the connection with scholarship and how that connects to daily practices and advising. Well, we have reached the end of the episode. If you plan on registering for the annual Nakata Conference, register today. The conference will offer live, semi-live, and on-demand content during the virtual event. And I look forward to checking out the presentations and also the online networking. If you have any suggestions on future podcast episodes, let us know. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. And again, a huge thank you to UCAT, UK Advising, and Tutoring for honoring us at the UCAT Festival with the Innovation Award for the podcast. Truly, truly, truly appreciate it. Keep advising and take care. And hey, stay safe, everyone.